I want you to open your hearts to the conclusion of a series of messages that we've been preaching for the last three weeks. This is the concluding sermon. It's the third in the series we've entitled The Offense of the Gospel. And two weeks ago on week one, we, our goal was to attempt to communicate to you the power that is in the gospel to overcome sin in our individual lives. And we asked the question, the gospel literally means good news. How can the good news be offensive? Well, the offensive part came when we began to get a better understanding of the issue of sin. And we spent a lot of time that first week talking about our individual sin. And we attacked the false idea that we can accept the gospel without dealing with the sin issue. You will never value the power of the gospel in your life until you comprehend the very deep stranglehold that sin has upon you. Maybe the best way to say it is this. The good news is not necessary if we can minimize the bad news of sin. And that's what our race has been doing since the beginning. We've been pretending that our sin is not all that bad. And one of the misconceptions about sin is just that. I'm not all that bad. Or we move even further to the comparison thing. Where we start comparing ourselves to other people. Like, I've never abused my family. I've never committed murder. I'm not a heinous criminal. And I'm not like so and so. So we minimize our sin, pretending that sin is not that bad in our life. Because we compare ourselves to somebody who is worse off than us. But probably the greatest misconception about the issue of sin is the idea of, is it sins, plural, or is it the issue of sin? Is it these multiple acts of disobedience in my life, or is it this sin issue that is a deep embedded root in the core of my human nature? And I will tell you that Jesus didn't come to die for your sins, the multiple acts of disobedience, but He came to sever the root of sin from the core of your heart. The real issue is not the sins we commit, but understanding that those sins are the fruit of a deeply embedded root in our human nature. We are sinful at our very core. Jesus didn't die in order to make us a more moral world, and the gospel is not a behavior modification program. Jesus died on a cross to uproot sin from the very core of the human heart. The gospel promises us that Jesus longs to extract our sin nature and to graciously give us His righteousness in its place. Paul describes it, we sang about it a moment ago, Jesus Messiah. The very first opening line of that song came from what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5.20 We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he says. So what you're about to read all happen for your sake and for my sake. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. We call it the great exchange. For our sake, God said, I'm willing to make an unfair trade. I'm willing to take all of your sin, that sin nature rooted in the deep core of who you are, I will take that. And in exchange, I will give you my righteousness. You give me your sin, I will give you my righteousness. And he's willing to make that unfair trade, according to Scripture, for our sake. Last week, 
Our goal was to show us how helpless we really are in dealing with our own sin issue. In other words, we cannot save ourselves. There is nothing that we can do to improve our standing before God except give up and surrender. And this is probably the greatest defense of the gospel, especially to Americans. Because in America, we love individual effort. We love rags to riches stories. We love rooting for the underdog that beats the odds and overcomes. We love the stories of self-made men and women who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. We love national pride, humanistic pride, the pride of what we can conquer and do as an individual. And that's why the gospel is offensive to a lot of Americans. Because the gospel tells us there is nothing you can do to improve your standing before God. Because the gospel attacks the issue of control. And in the deep heart of every human being is the desire for control. That's the reason Adam and Eve sinned in the very first original sin you saw played out on this platform. The devil, if you watch in the beginning pages of scripture, he said, you know why God didn't want you to eat of that tree? Because if you eat of it, you're going to be just like him. You're going to know the difference between good and evil. And it was a subtle play on the human heart to gain control and equal status with God. And ever since that time, every sin that has ever been committed is in its very core a rebellion against the rule of God in our lives. The gospel disregards your effort. The cure for our sinful nature is completely outside our best efforts. We cannot earn right standing before God. We cannot work our way into salvation. Individual effort will not get us to heaven. The gospel demands that you be a passive element in your own redemption. John Stott says this, The essence of sin is man trying to substitute himself for God. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. And that's why there's a cross. Like many examples we find in Scripture, and we looked at them last week, people spend a lot of time pretending, minimizing their sin and saying it's not all that bad. But when we move from pretending, we start performing. We get involved in religious activities. We start going to church. We we start cleaning up our lives. We become a little more moral. We serve the poor and we give. We become a person who is uh, full of charity. And we do all the right things, but we do them for all the wrong reasons. Because if our motivation deep in our heart is not a genuine love for God and a genuine love for people, all of our religious service then is simply a manipulative act to gain control over God. Because the human heart is deceitful. Fully wicked, the Bible says. And even our religion oftentimes is a performance in order to gain control over God. So we do all the right things to make deposits into our God account so that when we need Him to get us out of a jam, He is obligated to allow us to make withdrawals. And that is manipulation, which is the very thing that was in the heart of Adam and Eve when they sinned because they wanted control. They wanted to be like Him. The gospel is offensive because it attacks the issue of human control. So if the sermon in the series the first week was the power of gospel to overcome sin in our life, and the second sermon of the series highlighted the greatest offense of the gospel by attacking our human pride and telling us there is nothing you can do to transform your own heart without the intervention of the grace of God, then today's teaching focuses on the hope of the gospel that is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today, on Easter Sunday, the offense of the gospel gives way to the hope that is anchored in the gospel. 
The gospel makes a whole lot of promises. Matter of fact, the gospel in its very essence is one big promise made up of all of these smaller promises. I could write a book and preach a sermon series for an entire year and probably not exhaust all of the promises that are made available to the people of God in the gospel. Isaiah mentions several of them in one of the most beautiful Easter weekend passages of Scripture. Isaiah 53 talks about how he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and he bore our sorrows. He took our suffering, our sorrow, our sin, and he nailed it to the cross. He suffered so we could have victory over our suffering. And it even says that he was wounded by stripes that were on his back so that we could be healed. So he nailed our sin to the cross. He nailed our broken hearts to the cross. He nailed our sorrow to the cross. He nailed even our sickness to the cross so that through His work on the cross we could be healed, forgiven, set free. Our broken hearts could be mended. Those promises are contained in the picture of the gospel hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. The gospel is in its essence a promise. But a promise is only as good as the integrity of the person that makes the promise. The gospel, theologically, is a covenant. But for simplicity's sake, let's call it a contract. And I know the differences, but for simplicity's sake, let's call it a contract today. So, the gospel, the contract, the document states in it what God has done for you. What He has done to go to the great lengths and depths to demonstrate His love for all of us in this room. It states what He's done and what He promises in the gospel. It tells us uh, exactly what He's promised. And the work that He says He's done is finished. He's already done all the work. All we have to do is trust what He's done with our lives. Say yes to Him and surrender. At the end of every contract is a signature page. When you surrender your life to Christ. For me, it was 21 and a half years ago. On November the 18th of 1990, when I surrendered my life to Christ, said, I'm trying to do this, tired of doing this on my own. I was an addict, addicted to alcohol, living my own thing, doing my own way. And I said yes to him. And when I surrendered that day, that was me signing my part of the contract. I put my name on the document. And you say, but pastor, there should be two signatures at the end of a contract with two parties. When, where, how did God sign his part of the contract? He inked his name on the contract in blood that dripped down across 2,000 years ago. And he sealed that signature and validated his promises and notarized the document with his resurrection. Every promise in the gospel is validated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there is no resurrection, friend, there is no Christianity. Everything about Christianity is anchored in the validity of the resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I have wasted the last 21 and a half years of my life in the ministry trying to help people. If, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all of this is a lie and we are fools here this morning following a fable for something that has no meaning at all. Because the anchor point of all of Christian hope is the resurrection. It is the legally binding proof that all of the promises of God are legitimate. If He rose from the dead, everything He said is true. If He didn't rise from the dead, it's all a lie. 
The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.20, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in God. Paul was closer to the resurrection, believing that the tomb was empty. Paul said all of God's promises are yes. And then he says, and we are the amen to the glory of God. In the same way I'm preaching and somebody says amen. When God says all of the promises are in Christ, they are yes, Paul says Amen. So be it. We are the witnesses. We believe it is true and validated by the empty tomb. There's one undeniable fact about the first Easter morning. Jesus' body was missing from the tomb. There's a lot of debate among skeptics about what happened to his body, but it is an undeniable fact it was gone. Nobody has ever produced a body. No one has ever successfully refuted the fact that his body was missing. Jesus' body was gone, and that leaves us with only four options. Number one, his followers stole the body. That was, in fact, what the religious leaders of that day reported to the masses. They circulated when the body turned up missing that his followers stole the body. But is that even plausible? Did these men who followed Jesus the most closely have the courage or intelligence to steal their master's course? If you think they did, you haven't spent a lot of time studying the New Testament about Jesus' closest circle of followers. They were neither cunning or bold. At Jesus' execution, only one of them had the courage to show up. The rest of them scattered like sheep and nobody hung around to bury him. The man that they had followed for three years and claimed to love with all of their lives. And even after the rumor of the resurrection began to circulate, the followers of Jesus couldn't believe it. In John 20 and 19, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Not only were they afraid... They didn't understand the resurrection. It's almost like when Jesus was telling them he was going to rise from the dead, they thought he was giving them a parable. Like all the other stories that he spoke to, they didn't think he was talking about a literal resurrection. They must have thought he was speaking figuratively. Because listen to this conversation, Mark 16, 9. After Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went to the disciples who were grieving and weeping and told them what had happened. But when she told them that Jesus was alive and she had seen Him, they didn't believe her. So how would men who were so afraid they wouldn't show up at His crucifixion and burial have enough courage to sneak past a Roman guard and steal a body? How would men who didn't even really believe he was going to rise from the dead because they thought it was figurative be willing to steal his body, have the intelligence to steal his body in order to fabricate a religion that has taken over the world? Something changed these men from cowards to martyrs. Something changed these men who were so scared into one who would give their lives. Something happened that changed them into bold witnesses of a resurrection. Tradition tells us that after Judas defected, the remaining disciples out of 11 of them, 10 of them were killed for their faith and all 11 were brutally tortured because of their confession of belief in Jesus Christ. They were all faced with a choice, deny Christ and live or choose to continue to follow Christ and be tortured and die and every one of them chose to die. They saw Jesus, something happened. The only thing that you could plausibly suggest is that they saw a resurrected Savior that embedded in the core of who they were that this thing is real. That everything He said is real and it so changed their life. Now you could argue with me that people have died all throughout history for things that were not true. 
And I would agree with that. But nowhere in history do you find people willingly suffering and dying for something they knew to be a lie. Logically, you cannot conclude that Jesus' followers stole the body and fabricated a story. Even in a court of law, an eyewitness account holds more weight than secondary sources. And these eyewitnesses believed the point of the resurrection. They saw something and experienced something that caused them to be willing to give their lives for it. It was this very thing that captured the heart of Lee Strobel. A former atheist, Yale graduate, and editor, a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. His wife converted to Christianity. He thought she was nuts. And as a lawyer, he set out to prove the, the fact that Christianity was not legitimate. And in his research of the historical evidence for the resurrection, when he came across that every one of these men died, he knew they must have seen something that caused them to die because no one would knowingly die for a lie. And that heavy piece of evidence began to open his heart until... He came to faith in Christ and he anchored it in this reality. If the resurrection happened, everything else Jesus said is true. Option number two. The authorities stole the body. A simple question is, what would be the motive? The Jewish leaders and Roman authorities would have loved nothing more than to squash Christianity from its start, which is one of the reasons the Jewish leaders incited the crowd to get rid of Jesus. He was eroding their power base as he gained in popularity. And if they stole the body, it would only lend credibility to this entire movement. They would have loved nothing more than to find that body, take it in pieces, spread it across the Roman Empire, parade it through the streets of Jerusalem to show Jesus wasn't who he said he was. They couldn't because there wasn't a body. Option three, Jesus didn't really die. Some really intelligent person came up a few years ago with the swoon theory. The swoon theory asserts that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but merely lost consciousness. And as the story goes, when he was placed in the cool tomb, it revived him. And he walked out of that tomb with his disciples, establishing Christianity that is now taken over the world. And in my mind, that theory takes too much faith to believe. There are too many impossibilities to overcome. Death by Roman crucifixion was brutal. And it occurred when the victim gave into exhaustion. Most of the people who die on a cross die from suffocation. The nails are driven into your wrist. We call it the palm, but it was in his wrist. Driven into his ankles to hold him there. And the only way to breathe was to push up with his legs, pull down with his wrist, which is excruciatingly painful. But it would allow his airways to open to catch a breath. And then he would rest back on the cross. When someone became so exhausted they could no longer pull themselves up, they would then suffocate and die the horrible death of suffocation. If Jesus would have passed out on the cross, he would have suffocated. But let's just say for argument's sake that he survived the cross. More questions arise. How did he survive the spear that went between his rib cage and punctured the pericardial sac around his heart so that blood and water flowed out of his side? How could a man that had been beaten so severely that his internal organs were exposed then be crucified, survive in a tomb for three days, sealed up with no water, no food, no medical attention? How could a man in Jesus' condition roll away a huge boulder from a tomb when it normally took several men to remove that boulder and then in his condition slip past the elite Roman guard, locate his disciples, sneak into a room and inspire them to risk their lives for for his cause. The swoon theory just doesn't hold water. And if you buy it, I have some oceanfront property in Arizona. 
Option four, the resurrection is real. It happened. The tomb is empty. The evidence seems to lean strongly that direction. Not only was the tomb empty, Jesus made a minimum of 10 bodily appearances after the resurrection. And since that time, millions of people have trusted in the testimony of those first eyewitnesses. If it isn't real, this is all a farce. But if it is real, every promise is legitimate. If it is real, everything He said in the gospel is true. If it is real, there is real reason for your faith to be lifted there is reason for hope to be imparted into your heart today because if the gospel is true validated by the resurrection there is not a sin that cannot be forgiven this morning a sickness that cannot be cleansed a marriage that cannot be restored a life that cannot be turned around because if the tomb is empty every promise is true all throughout the building today We've purposefully established stations. That's what we're calling them. We couldn't come up with a better word. For you to apply this gospel to your life. You see communion trays. There are crosses. And in just a moment, some of our team of elders who pray at the end of our services are going to be available here in the front and in the back of our building so that people can apply the gospel. We did our best to expand our services across this weekend to try to create space in our building because when it's full like this, it's hard for so many people to respond. Our purpose was to try to make room for people to apply the gospel to their hearts because it would be tragic today for the tomb to be empty and us to believe that and not apply the promise of prayer to our lives for a miracle in our situation. Not apply the promise for forgiveness in our life one of the stations that is going to be available to you is for prayer from the elders of the church because the gospel promises that God miraculously responds to his people when they pray listen to Psalm 107 then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress he stilled the storm to a whisper the waves of the sea were hushed they were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desire haven all in response to the prayer of desperation the petition to the heart of God to respond to their need if the tomb is empty the gospel makes provision for God to hear us when we pray and it would be a tragedy for us not to petition him on resurrection Sunday to move the mountains in our lives James 5.14 says this, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them. Anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Another place in Scripture that tells us of the miraculous power available to us. That the heart of God is touched when we pray. And in a moment, elders will be stationed the front of this building and at the rear on the floor of the building to join with you in prayer that God would move the mountain that stands in your way. There's a second station, the most visible, the glowing, glittering brass covers of our communion table. Now, I don't know your faith background, where you come from. They may have called it Holy Communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Table. We call it communion here. And the very word communion simply means fellowship with God. And you know what the most intimate thing that was lost when Adam and Eve sinned? 
The most intimate thing was lost was that connection. God used to come down in the afternoons and walk with them in the cool of the evening, the Scripture said. But when sin came, that intimacy was removed in that relationship between God and man. But when Jesus died, the Bible says, the veil that separated man from the holy place was torn in two. And now we have access back into the presence of God. I believe there are some believers in this room today who long for His embrace. And we believe at North Place Church that you can tangibly feel the embrace of God, His love, His warmth, His embrace. And when I come to the communion table and I take of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am coming into fellowship with Him. I am making myself open up to the embrace of God so that I can reconnect because what was lost through the sin in the garden was restored by Jesus and God can now come walk with me. I can feel His love. I can feel His touch. And we have made this moment available for you to come and serve yourself communion elements. You can kneel and pray here when you take the elements or you can go back to your seat as a family, receive them together. We practice an open communion, which means you don't have to be a member of our church. All that we ask is that you be a follower of Christ. And in my heart, He wants to restore communion. He wants you to feel His presence for the first time in a long time. Somebody that used to cry when God touched them. He's going to open those tear ducts again and your heart is going to be softened as you take the body that was broken and you drink the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He's going to draw near to you at the communion table today. The third station and final station. And I'm going to ask if our uh, team is going to help me and the altars would come. The third and final station is these crosses. and We didn't have room to, to put the crosses up on, on each side of the, the building. Uh, prayer team, if you guys would just hold on just for a second. I'm sorry, I, I, I confused you. I meant the musicians. and I, um, I wanted the musicians to help me. I'll call you guys in a moment. The crosses on either side, um, you see things that have been nailed to them. At the base of every cross is a basket with a pen and a piece of paper and a hammer and some nails. And every one of those pieces of paper represents one of two things. It represents a believer who is tired of battling the same sin. They're tired of being that branch that's connected to the vine that keeps falling in the dirt and getting dirty and battling the same old, same old, same old. And they decided this morning if the tomb is really empty, Jesus died for my sin then there is power inside of me as a child of God that has the righteousness of God that he can break these chains that are binding me I don't want to carry this anymore why? because Easter is a day for fresh starts new beginnings Easter is a day where we celebrate second chances because the gospel promises a lot of things, but one of the most beautiful things it promises is clean slates, second chances, fresh starts, and the forgiveness of sin. Easter weekend is the best time ever for a new beginning, a do-over. You know, I'm not a good golfer, and because of that, I love playing with people who believe in mulligans. Because when I shank it into the creek, they say, Pastor, drop another one. That means I can hit it again and it doesn't count against my score. Easter weekend is a, is a weekend for spiritual mulligans. Where we can take our failed past, our, our messed up life, where we can walk in the front of a building like this and say, You know what? If the tomb is empty, 
There is power for God's grace to cleanse me. There is power for God's grace to deliver me. There is power for God's grace to set me free. And what I'm challenging you to do as a believer is to name it and nail it. Don't put your name on it. It's nobody's business. But name it, whatever it is you're battling with, and nail it. But there's another group of people represented on that cross. There's a group of people who came to Easter weekend services at North Place who did not have a relationship with Jesus ever. They've never known him. They've never walked with him. They've never, they may have been religious, but they never really knew Jesus. And today, I am convinced that the Spirit of God saying to people that have come here for a long time, to people that walked into church for the first time in the last 20 or 30 years, the Spirit of God is tugging at our hearts. And he's saying, would you say yes to me? Would you surrender? Would you sign your part of the contract so that this is the season of new beginnings and fresh starts for you? You know, this is what I know. Easter's not just a day to celebrate dead bodies being raised. It's a day we celebrate dead opportunities, dead dreams, dead relationships, dead marriages. It's a day of hope. You know what? I want to pray a prayer, and I'm going to ask all of you to pray it with me. 22 years, almost 22 years ago, in a moment just like this, a preacher prayed a prayer. I was a drunk, an addict, stumbled in under the influence of alcohol into a service just like this, and a preacher prayed this prayer. And to you, it may seem really insignificant, but I believed what I said. I said what that preacher asked me to say, and I believed it in my heart, and I've been sober for 21 and a half years. It changed my life. I believe somebody in this room that's feeling drawn into relationship with Jesus, wanting to make that exchange, give him your sin, he'll give you his righteousness. I believe you can have that life-transforming moment right now. I'm going to ask all of you to pray this prayer with me. Will you? Let's say this together. Dear Jesus, cleanse my heart. I want to make the exchange. I give you my sin my past, my failure. Would you give me your righteousness? I confess with my mouth, you are Lord. I believe in my heart, you were raised from the dead. Today is the first day of the rest of my life. And I give my days to you. I say yes, Jesus, to your Lordship. I surrender. Rescue me. Do for me what I cannot do for myself. In Jesus' name, amen. Two things I ask if you prayed that prayer for the first time or you rededicated your heart to Christ. On one of these pieces of paper, would you nail it? Would you write it out? Nail it. Either write your name, write your past, Write sin on there and nail it. So there's a tangible touch point. For me, November the 18th, 1990. For you, Easter Sunday, 2012. Make there a tangible touch point and nail it to a cross. And then when you leave, I have some friends that are part of our prayer team in the back that are working a table. I've asked them to give you a Bible. It's all free and a packet of information that can help you grow in this decision you've made today. We're not going to leave you alone. If you want to grow in Christ, we're going to help you grow.
I want us to stand all over this place, if you will. Prayer team, would you now please make yourself, uh, make your way to one of these places here. Our, our elders, our prayer team are going to make their way to the front of the building. Some of them are going to take their places in the back of the building on the floor. And let me say this. I realized this morning, and please forgive us, we tried to spread our services out so thin that we would have a lot of room. And I'm so glad you're here. Uh, I am. But it may be, you'll be patient with us. It may be logistically challenging. Um, I love big crowds, but when you're trying to do this, it's hard. So we tried to make small crowds and have eight services. But this is a big crowd. It's good. But we don't want you to let the crowd hinder you from responding if you need a miracle today. There are communion stations all over the balcony. And the way we're going to do communion today is Carolyn begins to lead us in a song about the blood of Jesus. If you, if you want to take communion, make your way to a table. Go back to your seat or if you're down here, find a place to kneel. If you need prayer for a miracle in your life, if the tomb is empty, it would be a tragedy not to have somebody agree with you. God moves the mountain. There are communion stations in the back, prayer partners in the back. But if you need to nail sin to the cross, whether it's a believer who keeps stumbling or somebody who prayed that prayer for the very first time, join these people who've already written it out. Name it and nail it. Mark the day you're set free. I'm going to ask as Carolyn begins to play and sing that this be a moment of meaningful transformation in your life. Jesus, let there be a sweet tenderness that comes into this place, not manipulated by man, not drummed up emotionally for a once a change that doesn't last. But would you do something here that no man could initiate, no man could finish, whether at the communion table, for the prayer of the elders, or God at the cross, the tomb is empty. And would you make the promises available in the gospel, apply them to every life that responds to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit to any of these stations, would you begin to make your way either to communion, to prayer, or to the cross?